0: podiums. Uh, Those podiums will now have the current lesson that we're working on and it will have the next lesson that we'll work on the next time. So on those two podiums uh, on the side doors are those lessons. So uh, that will be the case uh, from now on out. If you need a previous lesson, they're still up here in this box on the front pew. So the previous lessons are still up here. Uh, I want to remind you for the last time, this is my last reminder. You have an, a golden opportunity to reach out to non Christian friends and family. Uh, right now, from August 19th through uh, the middle of uh, this month, uh, we are doing a series of lessons really for non Christians. It's the identification marks of the church. And you need to uh, call your friends and family who are not Christians and just invite them to watch. Or if you don't want to do that, at least click on share and maybe they'll see it on your Facebook page. But these are the identification marks of the New Testament church. How do we know that we are part of the church? that Jesus built, Matthew 16, the church that was established, Acts chapter 2, the church that was led by inspiration by those apostles. Well, we have to duplicate the pattern. And that's what this series of lessons is all about, the pattern. So please keep that in mind. Also keep in mind, here is, coming up this fall, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis I don't think I've ever written anything really noteworthy in my whole career. This is the very first thing I've ever written that I would say is somewhat noteworthy. I've already written the first seven lessons. I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm not for sure where I'll be here or maybe one of the other rooms. I'm not for sure. But I can tell you this. I will be teaching this material. To really understand God, go to the beginning. Go to Genesis. And we're going to have, I think, a very very interesting study of a book that you think you may know. But guess what? I'm finding out that I really did not know the book of Genesis until just recently. So please join me with that. Also, I want to mention that we will be doing a study sometime in the future on the Holy Spirit. I don't know when. I haven't written anything about that yet. But uh, we are going to do a study of the Holy Spirit. We're up to story number 154. Many years ago, a Bible professor asked his class if you could go back 2,000 years ago during the ministry of Jesus, what would be the one thing that you would want to see him do? Uh, Many people had different responses. Uh, some said well i want to see this miracle i'd like to see that miracle uh, and some you know some said well i'd like to be there when he did his sermon on the mount when it came my turn i said i'd like to eavesdrop on all his prayers a prayer says a lot about what's going on inside And John gives us a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to look at a prayer from the Lord. John chapter 17. You know, often we say that uh, that prayer, you know, uh, uh, that often people will... Read about in Matthew chapter 6, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A lot of times people call that the Lord's Prayer. You know, that's not. You know, that's a prayer that Jesus gave to His disciples when they asked Him, Lord, teach us to pray. It was an example prayer. John 17. John 17 is the heart of Jesus coming out. In a prayer, John is going to pull back those uh, uh, curtains and reveal the heart of the Lord. Now, in this prayer, three parts. He's going to pray for himself, he's going to pray for his disciples, and he prays for you and for me. Jesus first prays for himself. John 17, verse 1. Oh, by the way, if you do have a comment or question, send it to me. And when the... Light flashes back there. I'll have five minutes to answer all your questions. So please text me your questions and I'll answer them at the end. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lift up His eyes to heaven. Jesus assumed the typical Jewish posture for prayer. Now, when we pray, we most often pray like this. And that that posture is in the Bible. I can show you where people did that. But what was the most common way for a Jewish man to pray? Like this. It's almost like you're asking God, okay, I'm ready to receive. I'm ready to receive, you know. Send down your blessings. Jesus assumed a typical Jewish posture for prayer, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify. Stop right there. When you think of glorify, you think of giving honor to somebody. Well, that's true. But the word here also has a second segment to it. A second part. The second part is to exhibit character as a reflection to exhibit character as a reflection glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him now here verse 3 Jesus gives us A fantastic definition for eternal life. He says, this is eternal life. Okay, you want to know what eternal life really is? That they may know you. Circle the word know. We want to come back to that. That they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. No. You know, we can know a lot of things. You know, we can know a lot of uh, trivia information. Uh, You know, we can know uh, mathematical solutions. We can know a lot of things. That's not the word that Jesus said right here. This is not just head knowledge, this is also heart knowledge. When you know the Lord, you're going to love Him. And if you love the Lord, John 14, 15, if you love Him, what are you going to do? You're going to keep His commandments. You're going to be obedient. You see, what is eternal life? It's knowing God to the point that you love Him, that you obey Him, that you live faithful to Him. That's eternal life. You can bank on it. That's the reason why John would say in 1 John five thirteen. you know, uh, we may know that we have eternal life. It's the same word. We can know that we have eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life. That you know, obey, love. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. When did Jesus begin? Answer, there's no beginning. Jesus has always been. Before the world was. There's always been Jesus. There's always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. No beginning. No end. Jesus prays first for Himself. But then He prays for His disciples. Can you imagine listening in on this prayer? You know they noticed that Jesus prayed so often they had to ask, you know, hey, teach us to pray. We want to pray like you. Of all the things they could ask, that was the one thing they asked for. (laughs) Did you catch that? Of all the things that the disciples could ask Jesus, they asked Him, can you teach us how to pray? Look now, verse 6, I have manifest your name, to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray for them. Think about Peter and John and James. They're listening in. Hey, he's praying for us. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. (laughs) Jesus is praying for those 11 men. In fact, we'll drop down to verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, Judas is carry it. We're down 11. We've lost one. We're down to 11. That the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Keep in mind, Jesus is just hours away from the cross, and He's talking about Joy. We are so fortunate that John included this. You know, the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they didn't include this. They left this out. John said, hey, we need to have this. By inspiration, he wrote it down. Jesus is praying for the disciples. He's praying for those men that had become his disciples best friends on earth. In 13 through 19, Jesus prays for their safety and for something else. Let's see if you can catch it, okay? Look at verse 13. Let's go back to verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. We've got to be in the world. But we can't let the world inside of us. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify them. Jesus prays for their safety and for their sanctification. What's sanctify? This is separate. I pray that you sanctify them by how? By your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified By the truth. For the apostles, this is a farewell address. Jesus is getting ready to leave them. For Jesus, it's a homecoming. He's been away here on earth for mm, about 33 years or so. He's about to go back to the Father. And then, he prays for you. Leso, he prays for you. Pam, he prays for you. Charlotte, he prays for you. Kenny, he prays for you. And he prays for me. But notice what he's praying for. Unity. Let's go look at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone. Father, I'm not just praying for these 11 guys. I'm not praying just for them. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's you and me. Why do we believe? We believe through the words right here. Jesus is praying for us. What's he praying? That they all may be one. If you look at my Bible, I've got it in red. I've highlighted it. Because you're going to see one pop up a bunch of times here. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one, okay, one in us. Why? that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity is the greatest testament to the power of God's word. Unity is the greatest testament to the power of God's word. Let's look at the reverse of that. Disunity is one of the worst testaments regarding God's word. He's praying that we be united. Why? So that we can what? Convince others. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one. <laughs> one. <laughs> you know, Jesus is trying to drive home a point here. May be one just as we are one. One. I'm flashing the one here. You know. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, you know how to drive home a point. And that the world may know, the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus prays for unity. What's the only way to have unity? Do you have unity by mergers? You know, maybe this big religious group combines with this big religious group. No, that's not unity. The only way to have unity is through God's Word. To be united on God's Word. That's what we're doing on Fundamentals of the Faith. Since August 19th, we've been talking about the pattern You never mentioned Him to me. You saw me day by day and knew I was astray, but you never mentioned Him to me. This is your opportunity to mention Jesus to our non-Christian family members and friends. In North America alone, according to uh, the last numbers I saw was in 2019, there were over 400 different denominational groups Many inside those groups have different what I call flavors, different types. That's not unity. What was happening in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, disunity. Why was it disunity? Well, I follow, I'm I'm a fan of Paul. Well, I'm a fan of of Cephas. Well, I'm a fan of, you know. Well, what did Paul say? Let's get back to Jesus. Let's get back to Jesus. The ending of this prayer is so powerful. Before we go to that, let me go ahead and look at this real quick. Okay. If Jesus is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God is, you know, three parts. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When he's praying, is he not praying to himself? Well, kind of, in a way. But then he's focusing his prayers to who? Go back to verse number one. Father. He's praying to God the Father. Yes, the three are one. You know, it's, it's hard for our minds to understand that. Because, you know, like everyone can see that I'm different from Lisa and Lisa's different from me. Okay? We're two different people. But legally, I'm responsible for everything she does and she's responsible for everything I do. You know, if she w- rings up a big bill and, and takes on a lot of debt, I'm as re- responsible for that debt as she is. Because legally, we're one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're three distinct parts I'm really struggling with the words right there. I don't part is really not a good word to use, but they are three as one. So yes, when He prays, he's prayed here to the Father, God the Father, but you know they are all united together as one. Good question. This conclusion here recaptures the major points of the prayer. Go back to verse 1. The glory and revelation of God. The love that God had and has for Jesus, which He passed on to the apostles. And Jesus' return to His Father. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, you know, we're, we're pinpointing, yeah, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but we're pinpointing this prayer to God the Father. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Thank you, John, for giving us that very personal prayer from Jesus. Now, this is not the only prayer that happens. We're going to have three more prayers. We don't really know a lot of the details of them. We just know parts of them. But we're going to have three more prayers in the garden. Jesus will pray in the garden. Jesus' prayers in the garden. There's going to be three. We're going to look at Luke's version of it. And I want to talk with you about His great agony. He's bearing unbelievable weight. It's happening on the Mount of Olives, very symbolic on the, in the Old Testament. A lot of prophecies regarding the Mount of Olives. In particular, he's at the Garden of Gethsemane, oil press. Gethsemane means oil press. You can just feel the weight on Jesus. He's bearing the weight of the trial. But now, it's not the one you're thinking about. He's going to go through a, a Jewish trial. He's going to go through, in fact, uh, parts, different parts of a Jewish trial. He's going to go through two Roman-type trials. But I'm talking about the trial that His disciples will face. And their weakness. Because see, he feels responsible for them. And and this is going to be so hard on them. And and he's overwhelmed. He's also bearing the weight of his own cup. We'll talk about that in just a moment. His own cup of suffering. And he's bearing the weight of our sins because he takes our sins to the cross. But, Notice I've got this. I've got this in different lettering. Here is in my opinion the biggest weight that he has to bear. For the first time in all eternity he's going to lose his connection to the rest of the godhead. For the first time in all eternity he's going to lose his connection to the Godhead. It's the weight of separation. And this is just my opinion, and everyone else can have their own opinion. I can be wrong. In fact, I'm wrong a lot. But to me, that's the biggest weight. Yeah, the cross is going to be horrible. The cup of suffering, our sins, all that's going to be horrible. But... But bearing that weight of separation, it's just something that he can't even imagine. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Coming out, they they cross out and go over to the garden. He went to the Mount of Olives as as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, the Garden of Gethsemane, We know what happens. He leaves eight somewhere near the opening to that uh, gate. Uh, There is a a cave there. If you can go there, you can visit the cave. Knowing that it was cold, remember when Peter is denying the Lord, what's he doing? He's warming himself by the fire because it's cold. I can see Jesus leaving the eight perhaps in that cave for their protection. Then he climbs out, he goes out and goes on top, takes the three, Peter, James, and John. He places them, what's he do? He places them about a stone's throw. Probably they can't hear him as such, but they can still see him. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. If you look at Matthew, you find out that he even got down on the ground. And prayed, "Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours, be done." The weight of separation—it's going to be so hard. An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. When's the last time that happened? It happened in the garden. No, excuse me, in the wilderness. Excuse me. In the wilderness with the temptation. Remember, after the devil had left, angels came and ministered to him. And it says that the devil left for a more opportune time. This is his opportune time. He's got one of the twelve in his pocket. He's got the Jewish leadership in his pocket. And he's got Jesus ready for a cross. The devil is trying his best. But the devil doesn't understand that this is part of God's plan. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Can you, can you maybe see that maybe in, in your mind's eye? Jesus on the ground praying like this. When he rose up from prayer, now we know this happens three times. He goes back, he finds Peter, James, and John asleep. We know that by reading the other accounts. When he rose up from prayer and come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Bearing the weight of the trial about to be faced by his own disciples and their weakness. Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. We're going to talk about the betrayal and the arrest. I want to look at Matthew's account, and then we're going to look at John's account. Judas had opened up his door of his heart to the devil. If you ever give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. And he's got Judas wrapped around his finger now. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude. We'll talk about the size of this multitude when we look at John here in just a moment. With swords and clubs, they're armed. Well, you know Jesus. You know he's always doing these miracles. You know, well, no telling what he might do. We better have a a big army to take him. You never know what he might do. They came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Remember the Passover meal? Jesus had honored Judas with that honored position, and now, you know, a sign, a kiss, a kiss on the cheek, a kiss of affection, a kiss of love. Is a kiss of betrayal? Whoever I kiss, he is the one who sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. He doesn't use the higher form. He uses the common form. Rabbi. Not Rabboni, the higher form. Just Rabbi. Rabbi. And kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend. I'll let you do a little research here. The word friend had come up in two other occasions just recently with Jesus. I'll give you one. Remember the story about the king and the wedding? And the guy that's in the wedding doesn't have the wedding garment on? He says, Friend. Friend, I gave you three years. You traveled with me. Three, approximately three years. No more. Friend, why have you come? That's not a question for Jesus to learn, it's a rhetorical question for Judas. Why have you come, Judas? Who are you listening to? Judas. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. (sighs) John 18. John gives us more details. About this arrest, about what really happens here. Let's begin in verse three. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, okay, we got five minutes here. He had received a detachment of troops. We've got a lot of firepower. You would call this overkill. Okay, you know, you're going to arrest one guy, what do you do? If, if you're in law enforcement, we have someone in law enforcement, you don't. if you got to arrest one person, you don't take 20 squad cars down to arrest one person. That's overkill. Judas has a detachment of troops. I would say this would be Roman troops. I can't prove that. It could be temple guards, but I don't know if they'd had that many temple guards. A detachment of troops and officers with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus asked, whom are you seeking? we got about four more minutes. If you've got a question, please send it in. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Now your Bible probably says, I am he. The word he has been added to make it a little clearer to you. Jesus says, I am. Remember the burning bush? God, Moses, I am. I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, I am he, the word is added, they drew back and fell to the ground. I can see it happening. You know, they're getting close, and Jesus says, I am. And they, oh, they the first guy in the front takes a step back and he doesn't realize that the people behind him are too close. And, and they and knock him down, and they just kind of go down like dominoes. He asks them again, Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I have told you that I am. I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. He's protecting his disciples. That the same might be fulfilled which he spoke of. Those whom he gave me, I have lost none. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest servant and cut off his right ear. That's Malchus. Put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? This is part of the plan. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Eleven apostles. Nine of them run away. John, probably the youngest, the one that Jesus... Jesus loved that one, you know, so much. The disciple whom Jesus loved. John follows close up. Peter follows at a distance, you know, kind of protecting himself. It says in the book of Mark that a young man runs away. They they try to grab him and he runs away. What's happening there? We think that young man is Mark himself, John Mark. Let me give you my opinion. My opinion, and a dollar will buy you coffee in most places except Starbucks. Okay. I think the upper room was the home of John Mark. That's my opinion. I think that Judas and the crowd first went to the upper room. Because remember, when Judas left Jesus, he was still in the upper room. Usually you stayed in, and had a lot of fellowship after a Passover meal. So Judas would expect Jesus to be still at the upper room. When he finds out that the upper room is empty, he said, Okay, I know where he's at. He's at the garden. He goes there often to pray. I think John Mark saw that as a young man and ran to help. He, he's probably asleep. He just got that, that one linen garment on. By the way, linen garment, that means he's got some money. His family's got money because that is a little bit more expensive undergarment to have. He runs out there. He gets out of his bed, runs to to where Jesus is, and he sees what's happening, and he knows he can't stop it. So he tries to run away, and they grab the garment, and the only way he can get loose is to back out of that garment. And he runs away naked. That's my opinion. I could be right, I could be wrong. I don't know. Jesus will be led first to the house of Annas. Remember when we saw that picture up on the PowerPoint? Probably Annas and Caiaphas, uh, their palace, uh, is separated by a, a common garden area in between. And he will have, he will have, okay, that's our time, uh, We will resume Sunday, Lord willing, with the first trial. Thank you so much. I'm out of time.